they think about discovery at the vision level, at the strategy level, and at the like outcome opportunity level. And really looking at like, we need each of those decisions to each of those levels to be informed by what we're learning outside of the building, whatever we want to call that, whether that's discovery or research or whatever. And then they feed back into each other. It's not like we just work top down. We also work bottom up. We also work on all three at the same time. Welcome to a new episode of Product Directions Podcast, 100 Product Strategies. We are your insider access to top product leaders shaping the strategy of the most diverse industries today. I'm your host, Nacho Vassino, and I'll be digging into the real-life situations, problems, and frameworks used for a strategy with product people all around the world in all kinds of products and markets. While there is no recipe for success, listening to others' experiences may give you the edge you need to solve your next strategic challenge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode. Today, I'm really happy to be with Teresa Torres, a very well-known and respected product discovery coach, author of probably the most known book on the topic, and also international speaker. So, Teresa, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Um, so I assume everyone listening to this will know you, but maybe just, just in case, can you provide a few words about yourself and maybe more interesting what, what you have been doing lately? Yeah. So I work as a product discovery coach, which there's a little bit of jargon in that. Really, it just means I help product teams make better decisions about what to build. And the mechanism for that is how do you build in really fast feedback loops with customers? So as we go about making our daily decisions about what to build, We want to make sure we're getting feedback from customers to ensure we're on the right track, that we're building the right stuff. So uh, at a high level, it's that simple. Of course, the tactics and the and sort of the mechanisms of the how can get a little bit more complex. Um, and then uh, today, uh, the way my business works, I started out as a coach. I worked hands-on with cross-functional product teams um, for weeks in a row. Um, eventually, over time, that evolved into an online course business. Um, and the reason for that evolution, we still do a little bit of coaching, um, but we find that courses are a more effective way to scale. So we talk mm -hmm. to, we work with some really large companies, like companies with hundreds, if not thousands of product people. And so it, it, it wasn't feasible to say, okay, well, we'll coach your teams one at a time. So now we have a model where we uh, um, run everybody through a course that covers sort of the fundamentals. And then for the teams that need it, we supplement with coaching. And then because we came out with that model uh, to support the bigger companies that we work with, we use that same model publicly so that individuals that work at smaller companies can also benefit from the same idea. So today it looks like a mix of online courses, some additional um, like team-based coaching, and then I spend a lot of my time uh, writing, teaching, um, creating short videos, really just trying to spread the ideas behind continuous discovery. That's awesome. That's awesome. And um, we will make sure that we link all of that in, in the resources. But I think that the short introduction you made about discovery is very interesting because today, unsurprisingly, the topic I want to talk with you is the connection between strategy and discovery. Um, and maybe before making any, any kind of, uh, dive question or any, any bias to whatever you want to answer, I want to ask you, how do you feel about how, What do you believe about the connection between strategy and discovery? 
Yeah, the first hard part of this is what do we mean by strategy? I, I see so many different people define this differently. Some people talk about your OKRs are your strategy. Some people talk about your vision is your strategy. Some people talk about your roadmap is your strategy. Uh, the definition of strategy I really like comes from the book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. Um, the author, Richard Rommelt, really talks about um, it starts with a diagnosis. So we have to look at what's happening in the world um, and really understand uh, what's happening in the market, what are external factors that are influencing that, and come up with a diagnosis, and then design um, a plan for how to react to that. Where do we want to play based on what we're seeing out in the world? What I like about that definition is, first of all, it gets really concrete. A goal is not a strategy. Uh, a vision uh, can emerge from your strategy, or your strategy can emerge from your vision. Uh, which direction those go, can I've seen it happen both ways. Um, but it gets really specific about what do we mean by strategy. The other thing that I like about it is that you can't really, I mean, I think your diagnosis gets a lot better if you do some discovery. So this mm -hmm. is where I think like discovery is all about feedback loops. It's all about how do we go and see what's happening in the world. And this is very aligned with this idea of to develop a strategy, to develop a plan of action. We need to be aware of our surroundings and what's happening in the world and the competitive landscape and where we sit in that. Um, and I, so I think typically, and like what I teach is discovery at a more granular level. It's down at the team level of where we have an outcome, we're trying to figure out what to build. But I think the, the ethos of discovery also live at that strategic level um, because it, we, how do we come up with a strategy if we don't know about our customers, if we don't know about our market? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Love that. Uh, and so maybe going deep into that, one of the, the first questions I want to explore is, so there's a chicken and egg problem there because in order to maybe some do this, know what to do discovery on, you need to have some some kind of uh, clarity on, on what market you want to play or what customer you want to target. But then on the other hand, to define the strategy, you need to have some already some feedback from the market, from what customer is yeah. the potential customer of your solution. So have you seen any of that play in, in the teams you coach? Or... Yeah, so this is, uh, this is, I think, one of the reasons why continuous, this idea of continuous discovery is so important. A lot of like what I teach, it, it's at the individual team level. So you're a cross-functional product team, a product manager, a designer, a software engineer, and you're starting with an outcome. We're trying to increase retention. We're trying to um, drive customer acquisition, whatever it might be. And you're trying to discover how do we move the needle on that metric. I would say that's discovery at the lowest level, right? It's the day-to-day mm -hmm. -day discovery. But I think that we make decisions, like strategy lives at multiple levels in the organization. There's sort of the Richard Rumholt strategy of like, that's informing our vision, that's informing a company strategy, that's informing a product strategy. But I think even at the individual team levels, they're deciding what customer problems are we going to solve. I think that's part of strategy, right? So an individual team, as they interview and collect opportunities and start to understand where they might want to intervene, that is a type of diagnosis where they're then choosing a plan of action, right? So it, this, these ideas, part of what makes them so vague and hard to understand is I think they cascade across multiple levels mm -hmm. of analysis. And so... It's hard to do anything with, like, it's hard to do any of this starting from a blank slate, right? So yeah. even if you're at the most high level of strategy at the like company level or the vision level, 
can't just pull a strategy out of thin air. You got to go talk to customers. You got to evaluate the market. You got to do a little bit of that. And it's not a one-time activity. It's not like we're going to do that and say, okay, this is our strategy and it's set in stone. As you move down the levels, they should be feeding back up into those higher levels if we're truly a learning organization. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting because it jumps to one of the, the, the topics I, I think it's most interesting is how product leaders should approach discovery or or be involved in discovery to bring it away. So let's say that, for example, we are trying to define strategy and I don't know, we do a software for, for doctors and we are uh, big in the surgeons market and we want to tackle, I don't know, pediatricians or, or any other group of doctors. Should the leader be involved in that? Should the leader be more uh, conversational in terms of uh, giving uh, this challenge to the teams or how would you recommend leaders get more involved in these uh, feedback loops? Yeah, this is a really great question. I looked away because I, I'm pulling up a, a LinkedIn message that I have right now in my inbox. I got a really great message from the chief product officer at Doodle, this woman, Stephanie Liu. And she talked about how her team went through this big, like strategic conversation about what are the different levels at which we work and how do we infuse those levels with different research? And she just today, like this is really timely, posted <laughs> about how like they think about discovery at the vision level, at the strategy level, and at the like outcome opportunity level. And really looking at like, we need each of those decisions to each of those levels to be informed by what we're learning outside of the building, whatever we wanna call that, whether that's discovery or research or whatever. And then they feed back into each other. It's not like we just work top down. We also work bottom up. We also work <laughs> on all three at the same time. Um, and so I think like one of the things that's hard for leaders is I hear every day from teams that say, I have no strategic context. I don't know what our company mission is, our vision, our strategy. But I also hear from leaders every day saying, I communicate this a million times and my teams don't get it. <laughs> I think it's because it's a moving target. It's messy, right? Mm -hmm. So there might be like bed that are stable. And I, we can think of some common ones. Like Apple has, a, has like a strategic rock of like, we believe in closed systems. We think quality goes up when we own the full stack right? That's something that like is universal at Apple. I think we have some other examples like advertising driven businesses, Facebook and Google are going to be really focused on eyeballs and engagement and open systems that are available to the masses. Um, Facebook's a little bit more ambiguous, right? Because they have some products like Apple that are closed and then they have some ad, ad based revenue. But some of these things are core in a company's DNA. And when they, and because we think of them as like bedrock, sometimes these companies get into trouble because they don't change them when the market is telling us they need to change. In fact, arguably Apple might be in this situation. I'm not gonna say they are because Apple has stood the test of time at this point, but <laughs> Apple is facing a lot of litigation around, um, should there be a side door to the app store, right? And mm -hmm. Apple would argue based on their foundational strategy that closed systems are better, that it's worse for the consumer courts around the world are suggesting otherwise is yeah. apple going to have to let go of this bedrock element of their strategy or or are they right and they're going to win out right so i think no matter what the level and no longer how strong the belief all of these all these different levels even our vision is going to evolve as we learn like one of the phrases i use a lot in my work is we're coming up with crummy first drafts and then we're iterating on it 
And I think this is, <laughs> this is true even at the vision and the strategy level. Like based on what we know today, this is our first draft. And as we learn more, we're going to continue to evolve it. I think what's hard about that is it takes a lot of discipline to keep evolving it. And it's already hard enough to communicate it when it's stable. So if it's always evolving, the amount of communication goes way up. So I think it's messy, it's complex, and I think it's why everybody's <laughs> genuinely confused. But I don't know a better answer. I kind of just feel like we have to over-communicate. Yeah, but I think that two, two more concrete questions to that. The first one is more about time management, for lack of a better word, that as a CPO, you are kind of bogged down in meetings and, and whatnot and all, all these tasks that we need to perform. Um, so the time to do actual discovery, to talk with customers, it's also kind of quite quite high or can, can become quite high for, for product managers. So how must a product leader be connected to these customer discussions or, or customers' touch points versus more on the on the receiving side of, okay, these are the insights that team collected and I'm hearing them. Yeah, I really, I want to get to a point where literally everybody in an organization has some exposure, direct exposure to customers. I think this is really the heart of customer centricity. We see a lot of companies embrace this where they have people do rotations on their customer support team. We're seeing more product teams interview on a regular basis. Um, the goal of this is not necessarily like, oh, I'm going to get some grand insight from this single conversation. It's more about we want constant exposure because constant exposure reminds us who our customers are, that they're not us, that we have knowledge they don't have, right? And so I think this is um, the, just the way human brains are wired. We need this constant reminder. It's so easy to slip into oh no, we'll just design this from our point of view, or we'll make this decision from our point of view. So I think it is actually really important that everybody in an organization, CEO, the chief product officer, the frontline support person, the individual product manager, like I would love to get to a point where we can design business systems such that everybody has some exposure to, to customers on a regular basis. Now by a regular basis, a good benchmark I think is at least weekly. Um, mm -hmm. I know a lot of teams that do much more than that. I know other teams that are struggling to get to that. Think about it as a benchmark to aspire to. Yeah. These conversations don't have to be rocket science. It doesn't have to be formal research. I think it's really about exposure. And there is, there is bias here. Like we have a bias called the mere exposure effect. The more exposure we get to something, the more familiar we are, We right? Like it also helps us overcome the curse of knowledge. That's another bias at play, which is we develop expertise in our product. Our customers don't have that expertise. How do we remember that? Um, there's a lot of other benefits to this, but I think, um, and it doesn't have to be a heavy lift. Like people hear this and they go, well, how do I talk to the right customer and recruiting is hard. Customers are engaging with your company every day, right? So it's like, how do we plug into those systems? How do we just increase our exposure? And I think that has huge trickle down effects up and down the organization. I imagine because many of our listeners are product leaders and I imagine the product leaders and hey, okay, I have five teams and the five teams are having weekly in the perfect world. They are having weekly touch points with the customers. If I need to be, I need to reserve another 10 hours per week to be with those customers, with those five teams, it's quite hard. And also at the same time, yeah. probably it's not the same question that the product team will have, as you said, kind of going deeper into how we move this needle versus the question that the product leader may have about thinking what's our strategy for the next six or 12 months. So how do you recommend going through that challenge? Yeah, really great question. I think there, 
If I'm a chief product officer and I have five product teams, the first thing I want to do is I want to make sure my five product teams are engaging with customers on a regular basis. I want to make sure that their discovery practices are sound, that they're getting what they need, and I might occasionally observe an interview and evaluate how they're synthesizing it to make sure that the skill level is adequate. Right. So from a coaching my team standpoint as a leader, I want to check in occasionally to make sure they're on track. That does not mean I'm watching all five interviews every single week. That does not, that's not the best use of a leader's time. Maybe it means once a week I'm picking an interview from those five teams to watch. Now, if I'm a chief product officer, I'm not just relying on my teams to talk to customers. I also want to be talking to customers. And just like you said, I have questions at a different level. They're at a higher level. Where is this market going in the next three to five years? How does our vision and strategy need to evolve? Uh, I might be looking at, at things like, um, how do our customers or potential customers um, view us relative to our competitors? And competitors don't just mean competing products. Sometimes competitors is doing nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know in my business, the biggest, my biggest competitor is, is leaders not training their teams. Right? It's not some other discovery coach that's stealing my business. It's teams not investing in training at all. Um, and so that's where uh, that leader has to also be engaging in their own conversations at those higher levels. So then the question becomes, how do they find those people? And I think they can do that the same way product teams do that. So one of the ideas in my book is to automate your recruiting process where you use hooks in your product to allow the customer to opt into these conversations I don't see why a chief product officer can't use the same mechanism where they just start to ask questions in the product that match the scope that they're, they want to learn about. And so that for the chief product officer, it becomes just like any other meeting on the calendar. Because of course, they don't have time to get into the recruiting game, right? But it turns out <laughs> neither do product yeah. teams, which is why we can just automate this away. Yeah, yeah. And, and to be honest, I mean, what I was thinking about is that we put all this emphasis on product leaders must coach the team, must uh, define the strategic context. At some point, we lost the relationship between, between hey, to coach the team and to build the strategic context, you'll need to be actively doing discovery. So that's, I think that's like yeah. a gap we need to fill. But this goes into the, the second big question I had in mind, uh, maybe to connect it to Sadashi, and, and maybe you have some recommendations. As you said, the question a product leader may have is, disconnected from what I may call kind of the current user needs. Um, let, let me give you an example. If you, and this example is coming from a listener, so it's very interesting. If you were in the 90s trying to say, I will make an online store, you will have this strategic goal of saying, hey, I want to make this business online and have all these benefits and whatnot. But then on the discovery side, you will go to talk to customers and customers say, hey, no, I don't want to put my card online. That sounds insecure. So how do you reconciliate this strategic or more forward thinking with the, the, the real customer touch points that may kind of uh, present the, the current blockers? Yeah, this is a really great question. Let's talk about this specifically. I was one of those people when e-commerce started. I was I had questions about uh, is it safe to put my credit card online? I think we, for all of us old enough to remember that time period, we all did, right? But what convinced us, what convinced us was the value we got from it. Whoa, I can order any book on the, in the universe. I think what really got me was there was a CD company. I, this was back in the day of CDs. I know that's already going to date me. Uh, but there was a CD company. Maybe it was like 1-800-CDs. I can't remember. But they sold CDs at like an astronomically low rate. It was like get 12 CDs for $3. And I was in college. Um, 
And it was just like, and I loved music and it was just like so compelling that I was like, all right, I guess I'm gonna give you my credit card, right? And so when we're talking about products and services that are on the edge of where we are today, this is where we are with AI. If I ask you directly about generative AI and you're not in the tech industry, you sh like I've, I've experimented with this recently because it's fascinating. Uh, average consumers, a lot of them are terrified of AI. And it's because of all the headlines in the press, they don't understand why they need it. It just sounds like this scary technology and they just shut down, right? Mm -hmm. But if I ask a different question, if I start to get into a very specific use case of like, hey, you um, are interested in uh, finding a new restaurant in town. Wouldn't it be great if you had a tool where you could tell that tool the types of restaurants in your town that you liked going to and it could make recommendations? Right. Like, and the reason why the recommendations use case is so powerful is we all use recommendations every day already in our life. And they have been machine learning driven for over a decade. Right. Like we're just it's like, how do we start with the like simplest thing you already know and then extend mm -hmm. it? And we're not going to extend it by talking directly about the risk that everybody's going to say no to. No, I'm not going to put my credit card in the website. That's not true. I am. As soon as you give me enough value that it warrants the risk. Right. And so this is why we have to test our assumptions in the context of the solution, in the context of the value we're driving, in the context of the need that we're addressing. And I think this is a really, um, this is where a lot of teams uh, pull innovations short, like they pull solutions that could have worked, pull meaning they choose not to pursue them because they're testing in the wrong context. They're, they're presenting the scary thing and they're not presenting mm. the value that offsets that scary thing. That's super interesting. And, and I may get off track here, but if we were to discuss, say, risky assumptions, for example, we will say to this team, hey, you need to test your risk assumption. Risk assumption may yeah. be that the person doesn't want to put their car online. So how, how do you overcome this or yeah, this balance or how can one notice that they are kind of falling into this trap. Yeah, so one of the things that I teach is when we test our assumptions, I do want you to test the assumption my customer is willing to enter their credit card data. But we're not testing that assumption universally, right? We're not saying in any context, anywhere on the <laughs> internet, you're gonna give us your credit card information. Because I can already tell you that test is gonna fail, <laughs> right? We're testing in the context of our offer so in my case, as a college student, yes. I'm putting on a page, here's 12 CDs for $3, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Will you give me your credit card information? That's a very different test than will you give me your credit card information in isolation? Yeah, yeah, got it. Um, one interesting side effect to having this high level strategic intention, but um, kind of very concrete experiment is that you may not have this path already formed when you are defining strategy. So going back to the online store, you may be steps away from saying, okay, what's the right value proposition for, for selling CDs or, or should I sell books or CDs or, or retail or what should I sell? So exploring this, maybe we can put it in the context of opportunity solution tree, um, exploring from, from this high level opportunity to more concrete opportunities and then solutions, how, how can leaders go through those steps from the strategic intent to actual solutions? Should they go deep in a, in a path or first go wide? 
Yeah, so when we're talking about vision and strategy, I don't think the opportunity solution tree is the right visual. So this is a mistake I see a lot of people make. They take a framework and they try to use it in all contexts, Mm -hmm. right? So the opportunity solution tree, it's all about how do we find the best path to our outcome? So that means we already have an outcome in mind. I think with vision, it's not the same. We're not trying to move a metric. We're really trying to paint our view of the future. Right. So let's say let's stick with our 1990s example. I think it's really compelling. It's the beginning of the Internet. We're starting to see. I'm sorry. It's the beginning of the Web. And we're starting to see um, more dynamic functionality become available. More is possible. It's the Wild West. eBay just started. Uh, Yahoo is growing in popularity. Right. Like it's we're looking at it and maybe we're like Jeff Bezos and we look at it. and We go, wow, this is where people are going to buy everything. How do I create a store? So now we have a bunch of questions. We had a, we had an inspiration. We're, and the other thing I want to highlight is this inspiration came from brand new technology. And Marty Kagan has a great quote for this that is just now possible. Mm-hmm. So this just yeah. now possible phrase I think is really critical because I think people underestimate this is where a lot of innovation comes from is that we push the frontiers of technology and new things become just now possible. And when we're talking about vision and strategy, it's really critical that we understand what is just now possible because that's what allows us to move our vision and our strategy forward. And we're living through one of those moments right now. Like generative AI <laughs> just made a whole bunch of new things just now possible, right? Yeah. And what's generative AI is a great example of this because a lot of people are just looking at generative AI and they're applying it to previous problems. Mm-hmm. How do I make writing this email a little bit better? How do I make summarizing this document a little bit easier? Okay, I think the really compelling use cases are going to be, we have a new technology. What is just now possible? Not just how do we make what we do today a little bit easier, a little bit better, but what is just now possible? So first of all, I love that phrase. I love that Marty recently, like in the last year, wrote a blog post about it. If people haven't seen it, go check it out. So let's go back to 1990. It's just now possible. It's probably not even just now possible. We have a vision of it will soon be possible to sell stuff online, right? Um, Because even eBay, let's let's really put this time into perspective. Even eBay, like eBay eBay was an auction site, but they weren't an e-commerce site yet, right? Like I bought something from you on eBay. I was sending you a paper check or I was sending you, uh, uh, right? Like it was still awkward. There wasn't like I'm putting my credit card on a website. We weren't there yet. Um, So we have this vision of like one day, everybody's gonna buy stuff online. Now I gotta, okay, great, that's a vision. A vision is, here's the future I can imagine. The future I'm imagining is people will buy things from me online. Okay, now I have a million questions. What am I gonna sell? Uh, How am I gonna build this? Who is it gonna be for? Like I'm starting from scratch. I just have this like inkling of a vision. Okay, well now I need a strategy. I need to go out and diagnose the market. What are people Mm -hmm. willing to buy? What are the most likely products people are willing to buy? And this is part of the Amazon story. Like Jeff Bezos had a vision for the everything store. And what he looked at, what's the product that is the easiest inventory that has the highest return on value? What would be the best thing to buy online? And the reason why he chose books is because books have a long tail, right? He mm-hmm. literally, no bookstore in the world can sell every book, but Bezos could sell every book online. So that's like not incremental value over a local book bookstore. That's 
huge value over a local bookstore. So he's looking for what's the use case where I can offer way more value that's just now possible over what we have today, right? So, okay, yeah. so you do your diagnosis, you come up with your plan. Our plan is we're gonna come up with, uh, we're gonna sell just books. Now you gotta put together all the things you're gonna do. Okay, well, how do I get books? How do I even tell people we sell books? Can I take payments online? How do I make that happen? And it trickles down from there. But again, it's not just top down, right? Because as I go start working on these problems and I realize I can't get every book, now that feeds yeah. back into this strategy of like, okay, well, my value is every book. I can't get every book. I can get like a million books. Is that enough mm -hmm. value? Good. Is that enough yeah. to like be better than going to your neighborhood store? There, there is an um, intermediate question in, in that um, market analysis. So got, yes, we can do market analysis, but of course, our market analysis is based on assumptions. It's based on assumptions like yeah. I can get all books. And as you said, I, books is the most compelling reason. You give the other example of CDs, for example. So maybe to make it more concrete, the question is, what techniques do you suggest to making this, uh, to, to gathering more evidence uh, through a discovery, through the common methods from this market analysis perspective? Yeah, so I think there's some assumptions that are, that I think like, I know a, a little bit about the Amazon founding story. Like I know part of the reason, and I think this is not just limited to Amazon. I think books and CDs were one of the first things sold on the internet for good reason. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. they reduce some of the challenges of selling online. It's easy inventory to store. Uh, it's easy products to ship. They're not gonna get damaged in shipping or they're less likely to get damaged in shipping. They don't weigh a ton, they're not dumbbells, right? Mm -hmm. um, so like the, those product catalogs have things, and, all, and then also they're enormous product catalogs. And so there's this like value trade-off. So I think some of those things you could just include as part of your diagnosis. Popular products at the time, People who are buying books and CDs have these um, inherent adva advantages and that they're easy to keep inventory. Um, they're not likely to get damaged. They're safe to assume like, they're not products you need. It's not milk. You don't need it in one hour. You, it's okay to get it in a couple days, yeah. right? So I think some of that you could reason and maybe that's this, yeah. like, this like current trend of first principles. Like you could just reason from like, mm -hmm. what are the types of products that would be good for this new world? Yeah. But I are, you, would, you still need to test with customers, right? Yeah. So like, I have this theory that this value of having access to everything is better than me going to my local store. Okay, well now I need to, I need to understand like how often do you go to your local CD store? Again, we're dating ourselves, but that's fine. And <laughs> um, I do kind of miss CD stores. It was fun to browse. Uh, how, like, how often do you go to your CD store and you can't find what you're looking for? Like that's yeah. an assumption I would want to test. Like how compelling is this, right? It's great that I can offer every CD, but if you don't want to buy the CDs that I offer that your store doesn't offer, there's not a lot of value to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I might yeah. need to test like how willing is the person to wait for the product? And I actually think like, I suspect Bezos tested this early on and it's why he's so hyper-focused on fast delivery. Because I mm -hmm. think a consumer's likelihood to wait isn't very long, right? Yeah. And so maybe he could get an early adopter crowd that was like, this is cool, I'll wait. But to really get the mainstream, you gotta reduce that time frame, right? So even, even uh, like this strategy won't work if these core assumptions aren't true. 
I do want to buy the things my local store has. I am willing to wait for it to be delivered to my house. I am willing, the value is so high, I am willing to enter my credit card. Some of these, like, where's the line between strategy testing and how testing, like implementation, product team discovery testing? I can't draw, like, the line is here. And if you're on this (laughs) side or that side, this is messy. Like, the lines are blurred and the low-level work feeds back into the high-level work and the high-level work feeds into the low level work. So if I'm a chief product yeah. officer and I'm thinking about like, how in the world do I do this with my teams? One of the big themes you need to be thinking about is knowledge sharing within your organization. As you talk to customers and test your assumptions around the strategy, your teams are talking to customers and testing their strategies around how to reach their outcomes. And there's needs to be crosstalk and sharing across what you're learning. And there needs to be across the teams, between the teams and you, between you and your CEO, between you and your sales team. And this is, there's this concept from like the, um, learning and organizational change literature, uh, literature around learning organizations. Um, and I really think to do this well, our companies have to invest in a culture of being a learning organization. Um, and Peter Senga has a great book on this concept for people that aren't familiar with it. But I think this is often overlooked. We can go talk to mm-hmm. customers and if we're not doing anything with what we're learning, it's a waste of time. So part of this is creating the culture of we're always learning, we're always evolving. Any any practical advice on before we jump topic? Any practical advice on on kind of creating this culture? Because I think that's super interesting for product leaders, and especially as we were discussing how we feed back to strategies that we can build on top of this knowledge that our teams are generating. Yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes I see companies make, whether it's the product leader driving it or it's the teams trying to figure it out themselves, is that we over-index on we have to have the perfect solution. So we need to come up with the perfect way to document everything we're learning. We need to tag it. We need to put it into a system. And we get distracted by tools. Start simple. Like you literally could start with, let's just do a monthly meeting where we talk about the interesting things we learned this month. Right? Like don't come up with the Fortune 50 solution if you're a 10-person startup. Because even if you design that Fortune 50 solution, you're not going to get all the decisions right. So iterate your way there. So I would say come up with the simplest thing you can do this week. Try it out. And then as you share and as you find gaps, just keep iterating. And eventually you might end up with that Fortune 50 solution, but it will be fine-tuned and tailored to your organization's needs. Yeah, that makes sense. So going back to what you were saying, uh, one, it's it's clear that there is no 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 line to be crossed there between strategy versus tactical discovery. But I think you make a great point about testing the value proposition. And that's something that sounds a bit more necessary. Is people interested in my value proposition? That's something that sounds like um, something that's core to the strategy. So to, to our diagnosis and, and the way we pretend to win, is that the right way that, that maybe might fall into this more strategic category? I want to go yeah, back to I, what you said. There's a few other things I would put in that category. So are we targeting the right customer? Mm -hmm. Right. Who are we choosing to go after? Do we have the right value proposition for them? Those two things are related. There has to be a match between the customer segment and the value proposition. Um, This is where something like the business model canvas, I think, can be really helpful. So it talks about not just who are we targeting and what's the value proposition for them, but how are we going to reach them? What channels Mm -hmm. through which are we going to reach them? Um, what's our relationship with them going to be like? This is where we get into things like sales-led versus product-led. 
Um, I think all those elements, like that whole right side of the business model canvas, start to become strategic elements that we can test. And David Bland's work on this, of like pairing the, the business model canvas with testing, I think is phenomenal. And I think a lot of that is work that's not happening at the product team level. It needs to be happening at the leadership level because it spans yeah. product teams. Yeah. What's interesting is that where the, the, the line tends to blurry, I believe, is that there are aspects on how you are testing that that is not, let's say, invalidating the hypothesis. It's more like, hey, we need more iterations. Like the example you read about the books. Hey, maybe it's we cannot get all books, but one million books is enough. And that's yeah. actually the same premise and you're iterating on, on, on how to actually deliver it. Tricky business. Um, I want to go back one step about the... Um, the opportunization tree that we mentioned. Actually, I think it goes into the, the knowledge sharing thing. Yeah. There are, especially in large organizations, there are teams that are contributing to what we would call the same product. So they, they own a slice of the product or a part of the, the customer experience. Do you recommend, in these cases, building a, a wider tree, a bigger tree, contributing from different teams, considering that they may explore similar needs in their customer touch points? I prefer one team, one outcome, one tree. Okay. Uh, mm. Like the opportunity space is unwieldy, right? The broader the scope, the more unwieldy. It's gonna become very quickly hard to manage. So yeah. let's say we have seven teams and they're all contributing to increasing retention. Yeah. First of all, retention is a business outcome. So I wanna translate that to a product outcome. I want to look at what are the behaviors in the product that are going to drive retention. And I'm going to give teams different behaviors. Maybe maybe I'm going to give them different behaviors. Like maybe let's look at, uh, again, let's go to Amazon. Let's stick with Amazon as our, as, our, um, as, our, as our example. So we want to focus on increasing return purchases, right? Mm -hmm. So that's Amazon's view of retention if we're focused on their commerce business. Okay, so I'm gonna, my goal is to get you to buy more things from Amazon. That is a business outcome. It's a financial metric. I'm trying to increase the number of times you buy in it, let's say a month. So now I wanna look at in the product, how am I gonna drive this? Well, I, can, I have seven teams working on this. I don't wanna give seven teams the exact same outcome because now they're gonna overstep each other. They're gonna have dependencies. They're gonna step on each other's toes. They gotta share what they're learning. It's super unwieldy. So I can break this down in two different ways, primarily. There's probably more, but the two that I see most common. One is I can break it down by steps in the journey. What is it going to take to get you to come back? So I can I can look at things like I'm going to have one team focused on increasing the desirability of the products that we sell. How do we like focus on having more products? I'm going to have another more of the right products, not just more products. And then maybe I have another team focused on like findability. How do I get you to what you're looking for as soon as as quickly as possible? Maybe I have another team focused on shopping cart conversion because I don't want you to just come back and browse. I want you to come back and buy. Um, maybe I have another team, right? So I'm taking the steps of the journey for the behavior that I'm looking for. And if it's, if it's like return purchases, I probably have another team focused on the trigger. What's going to get you to come back? And they're probably sending yeah. you an email, right? So I can take that outcome and I can break it down based on the steps of the customer journey. And I can have each team focus on each individual step. Now this doesn't reduce all dependencies. What one team does on one step is gonna affect what uh, the behavior of, of what's happening in the next step. So we still need these teams sharing with each other what they're doing. We need a coherent product. We need one to not negatively affect another, but they each have their domains. 
they each have their specialization. They each have their area that they're going to focus on. So that's one area you can break down a metric like that. The other way we could do it is we could say, okay, we want to increase return purchases. We have seven different properties around the world. You're going to focus on North America. Uh, somebody else is going to focus on Germany, right? And we can break it up by yep. location. Um, yep. But I, what this does is it gives each team full accountability for their outcome. It also gives them a discovery space that they completely own. And this is what allows us to move fast. Again, it doesn't remove all dependencies. We still have to share with each other. We still have to make sure we have a coherent product, but it's way better than here's seven teams yeah. just trying to increase return purchases <laughs> and they're all doing whatever they want. Here's the challenge I see in the, in the I mean, to take it, that's, that's how most teams and organizations and large organizations work. The challenge I see is that even though we are splitting that space when we are talking with customers, Customer has the, the overarching need. So yes, probably yeah. there are some specific questions to the flow. And that's where I see that, especially as product leaders trying to come up with a strategy or to, to make uh, these teams work, cooperate more, more uh, easily. Um, we need to generate uh, this, this um, shared understanding of the customer needs and the customer journey. And that's why kind of maybe sometimes I have seen that, that kind of combined tree um, and tends to be useful to identify opportunities that maybe, for example, let's say we want uh, or we can enable faster shipping, but that needs to be yeah. explicitly mentioned in all the journey. So that's the, the sort of- You're raising a really uh, good point. And so I want to highlight two things. First of all, I presented this as do this or that, steps of the journey or regions. It's never that clean. Almost every company I've ever seen, they're doing a mix of both, right? So that's the first thing. It's the Team structure is so messy and there's not one right answer. That's the, I'm just going to acknowledge that. The second thing is there is a cost to splitting this you don't have a single team focused on the entire journey. And there will be opportunities that span the entire journey. And so I also see companies do, okay, you focus on this step, this step, this step, and this other team is gonna span steps. And they're really focused on what are we missing by dividing this up across journeys. Now what's hard for those teams is the teams that are spanning the journey is they don't really own anything. And so it's actually really important that that team be pretty senior and that they know how to influence and that they can manage that complexity. So what I like to see is like one way to do this is we've got a, we've got like six teams spanning a journey and then we have a group product manager spanning like six teams that work on one step of the journey and then we have a group product manager that is looking strategically across the journey. And then and that person ha and maybe even a group tr uh, group trio, right? It doesn't have to be just the product manager. Yeah. Um that is then um looking at hey, there's a really big opportunity that spans these steps. I'm now going to coordinate the work of these teams to go after that opportunity. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, and, and maybe to, to play back what you said, um, it's less about the tools. Like I, I mentioned this combined tree that was kind of the tooling way to say it, but actually it's more about the collaboration and, and again, what you said, sharing the learning and, and yeah, understanding how we can get these learnings across the, the, the entire journey. You raise a good point too. Like that group product manager that's spanning the steps might have an opportunity solution tree that spans all the steps. Here's the difference. Mm -hmm. That group product manager's opportunity solution tree isn't getting to the level of detail as the individual teams. They're limiting the opportunities to the ones that span the journey. And that's what makes it so that it doesn't suddenly blow up and be so unwieldy because it's representing all the detail of the entire journey. It's limited, right? The individual teams mm -hmm. can capture all the individual step detail. And then that group product manager can now work at a different level. 
Love it. So for just to make it more concrete, if I'm the product description page team, I will have things to improve how the product is displayed. But then if we have the increase or decrease shipping time opportunity, that will be at the group product match level and he will coordinate the, or he or she will coordinate the work of all teams. Yep. Love it. I think this is actually why our team structure has to be messy. Like we can't just be all in on one strategy on team structure because every team structure of us of one type and by type, I mean like steps of the journey versus region will have gaps. Like one of the areas I see this a lot is marketplaces and forget marketplaces, any ecosystem with more than one user, right? Like we think about marketplaces as buyers and sellers, but like Facebook is a marketplace. We have, we have um, consumers and advertisers. Um, Netflix is a marketplace. We have um, viewers and content providers, right? So mm -hmm. any ecosystem where there's more than one type of customer, which is almost every single product known to man, we can have teams focused on one audience and other teams focused on the other audience. But what we lose is who's focusing on the intersection points between those customers. Yeah. And so this is where we have to mix our structure. We have to have some, it's yeah. great to let one team just focus on the needs of one customer and another team focus on just the needs of another customer. But we also need a team focused on the intersection of those needs. Yeah, and actually to deploy strategies in marketplace context, you usually need both things to, to work simultaneously to, to make the value happen. Yeah. So fully agree with that. We are almost over time. And I, I don't want to miss asking my two final questions. Uh, the first one is that I know that you are an avid reader and we mentioned good strategy, bad strategy, but I want to know if you have any other book recommendation or strategy that you usually give to product leaders. You know, one of the books that I always recommend is Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. It's just a really nice summary of what we know about decision-making research. So much of product work and so much of business is how do we make better decisions. And I think that book, it's very engaging. It's very accessible. It's not an academic book, but it does a great job of representing the academic research on decision-making. And the final question is... What's some learning about product strategy that you have along your career that we may not have covered in our conversation? You know, I think a big one is market timing. So I've experienced this a lot in my career. I worked, my full-time employee experience was um, working at really early stage startups, like think 10 to 50 employees, really in the very beginning days, almost always pre-product market fit. And it's really easy when you're that early in a product's life cycle to project that the market is going to move faster than it does. Um, really famous example of this, it was going to be the mobile revolution for like seven years before it was actually the mobile revolution, <laughs> right? Like we think we, I, I think there's a great quote. I know Bill Gates has said something like this. I don't know if it originated from him, but the quote is something like, uh, we overestimate what we can do on a short time frame and we underestimate what we can do on a long time frame. And I think he, he, he framed it as like a year and a decade. Um, mm -hmm. And I've seen lots of variations on that quote. But I think like what's so hard about product work, I don't think it's that hard if we do good discovery to understand a customer and understand their needs. I think there's this third element of what do we work on right now? What's the need to address right now? And I think that right now piece, the timing of a product is really tough to get right. It's yeah, so yeah. easy to like get excited about our future vision and work ahead of the market. Um, and I think it's really critical that we focus on 
No, what do people need today? Not tomorrow, today. We, end up, we have to understand tomorrow because it informs our vision and where we're going, but we have to build for what people need right now. Yeah, yeah. so there's a tension in between what, where we're going and what we're building today and how that's getting, actually that's strategy. I mean, it's kind of getting closer to our vision. So that makes a lot of sense. All right, Teresa, this has been wonderful. Thank you for your time and sharing all these insights with us today. Where can people find you and how can they support your work? Yeah, so you can find me online at producttalk.org. I blog about continuous discovery literally every week now. We're now at a weekly cadence. Um, here's what I'm going to say is particularly for your audience, since it's a lot of product leaders. I've been um, hosting monthly uh, discussions for senior product leaders whose teams are trying to put the discovery habits into practice. Uh, so for people that aren't familiar with my book, it's called Continuous Discovery Habits. It's all about what your team should be doing to be continuously learning from your customers. Uh, I have heard from a lot of leaders, like one of the challenges is this. I believe in this way of working, but I never got to work this way as an individual contributor. And so now it's hard for me to coach my teams working this way. How do I close that gap? So that's what these monthly discussions are all about. They're completely free. I'm just doing this as a way to uh, um, create a safe space for leaders to come together and talk about what they're seeing. Um, if you want to join those monthly sessions, all you have to do is send an email to support at product.org um, and we'll get you on the list. Perfect. I will I will put that link or that email address so people can show you. I'm sure that was, I, I never know, didn't know about that. So it uh, sounds super interesting. So yeah, it's a we'll, recent... I'm sure many people will be interested. Yeah, it's a recent new thing for me. I've just been doing it for a few months, but it's a ton of fun. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, thanks for all the insights you, you share with us. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of 100 Product Strategies, the podcast by Product Direction. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram to get access to free weekly content that helps product people upgrade their skills and become more successful. You can access more material, promotional trainings, and be notified of every episode of the show with Product Direction's weekly newsletter. Join thousands of product leaders by registering in productdirection.co 